Good morning, everyone, and uh, thank you for joining us for another live SACPA live stream. During this time of social and physical distancing, SACPA believes it's important to keep engaging with the public on issues of the day. And in order to do so, we are very thankful for the continuing support received from the University of Lethbridge, Shaw Spotlight, and the Lethbridge Herald. Our speaker today is Dr. Hanrahan on the topic of is it important to add uncomfortable truths about Canada's colonial history into Alberta's K-4 curriculum. Dr. Hanrahan is currently Board of Governors, Research Chair Tier 2, Coordinator of the Canadian Studies Program, and Associate Professor in the Department of Geography and Environment at the University of Lethbridge. She's also an adjunct professor with the Environmental Policy Institute at Memorial University. She has a PhD from the London School of Economics and Political Science, and her work is interdisciplinary, drawing from geography and other social science disciplines. Thank you very much for joining us today, um, and we very much look forward to your talk. Thank you for the invitation, and I'm delighted to be here. I'd like to say that SACPA does great work. It's very important work, especially now when evidence-based policy is backgrounded and sometimes even derided. It's certainly undervalued. Uh, I'd like to review a few things before I engage with the topic, residential schools in our school curriculum. I need to point out that I'm not an expert on residential schooling in Canada or elsewhere. You know that academics tend to be specialized and this is not one of my areas of specialization. I did one study that involved residential schooling and I'll return to that later. That was about 15 years ago. So uh, the, the invitation to speak here came out of a letter in the newspaper that my students and I had written, students in my Indigenous health course. They're third year students who are very interested in residential schools. They were given, uh, uh, for their research assignment, they were asked to choose any topic that related to Indigenous health and over half of them, so over 20 of them, chose residential schools. And we wrote the letter to the paper subsequent to that. The Lethbridge Herald. I should point out also that I'm not an expert on the education of children either. I'm speaking here as a parent, as a citizen, and as a scholar whose work, whose whose work has touched on this subject, sees the effects of uh, it every day in our society. I'm aware of Treaty 7 and Métis Region 3, but I'm ambivalent about land acknowledgements. I'd like to see them tied to action somehow, so I'm not doing formal acknowledgements until I give this practice some more thought. To tell you a little bit about myself, I grew up in Newfoundland and Labrador. I'm Treaty Mi'kmaq. Um, my community band is Splatig Mi'kmaq First Nation, and our Indian Act band is Halibut Mi'kmaq First Nation. I'm also the daughter of an immigrant from Ireland, right on the Irish border, another site of ongoing colonialism. So I'm both an indigenous and settler. Because of my appearance, I live a life of white privilege. Interestingly, my appearance also puts me in the position of hearing um, questionable remarks that speakers assume I'll agree with. So. I've been asked to address the question of whether or not this topic, residential schools, should be something that our children learn about in K to uh, four. 
And my answer is yes. But first I want to talk a little bit about residential schools themselves and the history of the institutionalization of undesirable people. People who are not wanted by the colonial state and the, and the neoliberal state which privileges capitalism and is built on white supremacy. The neoliberal state and its partner capitalism are both exclusive. Not everyone is included or needed. Margaret Thatcher would have been the, one of the first to realize this as a political strategy. The presence of some gets in the way of neoliberal and capital goals, capitalist goals. So Canada is naturally white. The settler state of Canada is naturally white. And indigenous people have always posed an existential threat to this state. Indigenous people had land, land that was coveted for settlement and the generation of profit. Indigenous people moved with the seasons. Capitalism is based on land tenure, permanent year-round settlement and continuous predictable use. Indigenous people hold property in common. Capitalism is based on private property. Indigenous people value maintenance, stability, balance. Capitalism is based on continuous growth. Thus, Indigenous people pose an existential threat to the state. The Indian Act aimed to contain Indigenous people, to shrink their land bases, to end their land use practices and movements, and to erase indigenous values. This was deliberate. All it undergirded all policy. It was aimed at removing indigenous power and shifting power to the settler state. All of this was aimed at assimilation, the erasure of indigenous values and the cultures built on these values so that they and and so sorry, so that any and all initiatives of the settler state would be unfettered. The script system to which Métis were subject, the resettlement of the Inuit, all these actions had the same goal. Residential schooling, taking the Indian out of the child, was key to these goals. And I should say that First Nations, Métis and Inuit were all targeted for residential schooling. Slide, please. So this is um, a map of uh, showing that there were 130 residential schools in Canada over a 165 year period. So that's almost two centuries. An estimated 150,000 children attended these schools. And that's a population the size of Lethbridge half again. The first one opened in Ontario in 1831 and the last one closed in Saskatchewan in 1996. Here in Alberta, there were no less than 25 residential schools, including two nearby at Cardston, where children from the Blood Reserve, the Ghana Nation, went. These were government-sponsored schools run by churches. St. Mary's was Catholic, while St. Paul's was Anglican. Um, I should also mention that the map is inaccurate in that it doesn't include Newfoundland and Labrador, which I'll come back to. There's a reason that former students refer to themselves as survivors. Teachers and staff inflicted abuse, including physical abuse and repeated sexual assault at the schools. And this was not uncommon. Many school authorities deprived children of food, sometimes leading to malnutrition. Children suffered preventable diseases like tuberculosis and influenza. 
We don't know the exact number, but it's estimated that approximately 6,000 children died at residential schools, many buried in unmarked mass graves. Children received little education, little classroom time, and they learned only the basics, the three R's, if you like, in English. They were generally not allowed to speak their own language. Remember, the purpose was assimilation, not education. Children spent about half their day working, and this was gender stratified. So girls cooked, cleaned, sewed, and did laundry, while boys did carpentry, construction, and farming. Children had other chores as well. And those who survived did not have the skills for further education or to, to, for decent jobs. A settlement agreement with the federal government was signed in 2007, and the next year, Prime Minister Stephen Harper offered a formal public apology to some, but not all, survivors. The indigenous people of Newfoundland and Labrador were excluded from both the settlement and the apology because the reasoning went, Newfoundland and Labrador did not join Confederation until 1949. Meanwhile, uh, many former students, as the, the federal government calls them, live with what has been uh, described as residential school syndrome. Residential school syndrome is characterized by acute self-conflict and low self-esteem, by emotional numbing, which interferes with the ability to trust other people and to form lasting bonds. Um, also chronic depression and anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder or many features of post-traumatic stress disorder such as insomnia, flashbacks, nightmares, disassociation. With residential school system there are also strong tendencies towards the use of alcohol, uh, drugs and suicidality. The residential school system was a, a tool that we can situate in the history of the institutionalization of undesirable people, and especially in British colonial history. The old poor law of England and Wales allowed for the grievous whipping and branding of rogues and vagabonds, people who moved, who wandered. This was in 1572. Similar legislation was later introduced in Ireland, one of Britain's first colonies. The theft of Irish land by British aristocrats and the British state evicted millions of Irish from their small farm holdings, leading to widespread hunger long before the Great Famine of the mid-19th century. Slide three, please. In 1838, workhouses were introduced and became what has been called the characteristic stamp of British rule in Ireland, hated by the whole nation. Inmates, as they were called, were given two meals a day, milk and potatoes. Occasionally, they were given herring. This might be starting to ring bells now. <laughs> Families were segregated by gender, including young children who were separated from their mothers. Parents spent their days working with work being uh, gender stratified. Men broke stones or, or worked in the fields while women did housework, laundry and sewing. Workhouse incarceration peaked in 1850 with 200,000 inmates. When war broke out in 1914, there were still 35,000 people in Irish workhouses. These institutions were a pipeline to jail and often to lives of addiction and poverty, all caused by trauma. Next slide, please. 
Workhouses were technically abolished in 1922 with Irish independence, but really the new Irish state turned them into what they called county homes and industrial boarding schools for poor and so-called troubled youth, mostly boys. Dominated by the Catholic Church for the next 50 years, the Irish state funded church-run industrial schools, now considered sites of industrial child abuse. Next slide, please. I mentioned boys. Girls with troubled backgrounds were identified. Some were unmarried and pregnant. Their children would often be sold to the, to the United States. One, in one record, uh, there was a teenage girl who refused to obey an order. Another incarcerated girl was um, too pretty to be free. These girls and women were sent to Magdalen laundries where they were called penitents and had their name changed or were given a, num a number, which they were referred all the time. The women worked as slaves, entirely unpaid, while the host convents made profits off their work. Some women were there for life. The last Magdalene Laundry closed in 1996, which you might recall is the same year the last residential school closed in Saskatchewan, in Canada. Many of these women were buried in mass graves, their, gra their deaths not recorded. In 2011, the United Nations Committee Against Torture criticized the Irish government for not acknowledging the pain and abuse suffered by these women. More recently, there has been a redress scheme, though it, it is limited. So Ireland internalized the colonialism imposed upon it. In a cultural sense, it's, recent, it's only recently emerging from this colonialism. Ireland locked up more of its citizens per capita than anywhere in the world, including the United States, not in prisons, but in psychiatric hospitals, Magdalene laundries, and industrial schools. I don't know, but I suspect that the indigenous Irish travelers or mincier were overrepresented in all, in all these institutions. They moved, the mincier, the travelers, they moved about in caravans. They did not own land. They were, and they were targeted by legislation that restricted their wandering and their eschewing of settlement culture. <clears throat> I tell this Irish story because it runs parallel in many ways to colonialism and the residential school system in Canada. I suspect that more, tra more traditional indigenous people in Canada like the Irish travelers, were more vulnerable to being taken or kidnapped, really, uh, for residential schooling. I have a friend who was age six, trapping with his parents in remote northern Quebec when the RCMP arrived in float planes to take him and his siblings away. They had no notice of this. I believe this family's entrenched indigenous values and practices made them targets. British colonialism tried to destroy Irish culture to, acqu to acquire profitable land. Sometimes it's easier to see how colonialism worked and works if we look at, at it from a distance. Close to home, so many of us have benefited from colonialism. Does it seem more natural to talk about colonialism in Ireland and other places? I follow this story in Ireland today uh, mainly via radio, and there's no sense that Irish children should be protected from it. Many of them are the grandchildren and great-grandchildren or great-grandchildren of women and men imprisoned in workhouses, laundries, and industrial schools. In Ireland, you have multiple multi-generational trauma with the loss of family life, 
the experience of being parented, the sense of abandonment children felt and grew up with, and of course, the abuse. Slide six, please. This brings us back to residential schools in Canada and a proposal being considered by the provincial government to exclude residential schooling from the K-4 curriculum. In 2014, Alberta affirmed its commitment to Indigenous perspectives and experiences in K-12 schools at a Truth and Reconciliation Commission event in Edmonton. Alberta's promise included mandatory content for all Alberta students on residential schools, on treaties, on First Nations, Métis and Inuit experiences and perspectives, cultures and contributions to historical and contemporary, in historical and contemporary contexts. Now this promise has not been taken seriously. Residential schooling, we're told, is too sad to teach young children. When the topic is introduced, residential schooling will be framed as harsh schooling. It's, it's okay to see it as harsh schooling, but it is not just or even honest to leave it at that. Why was this approach taken? Why did residential schools exist? Why was schooling harsh? Who experienced harsh schooling? Whose interests did it serve? Who established it? Who maintained it? How was it enforced? What effects did it have? What effects does it have? I've already stated my position that residential schooling was a tool aimed at erasing Indigenous values and identity because these pose an existential threat to Canada as a neoliberal settler state. This is the same reason why so many First Nations reserves lack potable water, by the way. But these things will not be taught in Alberta schools. The Minister of Education wants to take politics out of curriculum, in her words. Now, this is just silly because everything is political. The objective understanding, quote unquote, that Lagrange aims for is impossible. Objective understanding really means a default to the status quo, to the invisibility of Indigenous and colonial history, to white privilege and to history being written by the winners. Initially, all eight subject matter experts commissioned by Minister LaGrange were men. This is the UCP way of doing business. This is normal for them. Their goal is the maintenance of male privilege and the dominance of male perspectives, especially white male perspectives. One of their experts, Chris Champion, calls the inclusion of First Nations perspectives in school lessons a fad. Minister LaGrange's spokespeople say this is only advice, but it is solicited advice, and it would overturn good curriculum work that included Indigenous perspectives and took an approach that was not based solely on content and techniques like memorization, as the current uh, pr proposals are. I've had several university students come to me in the past few years just after they've learned about residential schools for the first time and they're angry. A young woman from Calgary approached me on social media upset that she had not known about residential schooling. These young people, all of whom have settler backgrounds, feel robbed. Imagine if Irish students weren't told about their own national experience of colonialism and about the residential institutions that propped it up. Imagine if students in the United States weren't taught about slavery, which 
also existed in this country. Or if German students weren't taught about the Holocaust and the devouring of the Roma. Slide seven, please. Our young people have a right to know their history, especially since its effects are ongoing. We see this in poor population health among indigenous people. Inuit suicide rates are eight times the national average. We still have tuberculosis among poorly housed Inuit. There are assaults on Mi'kmaq fishermen. There are dozens of opioid-related deaths every year among the Blackfoot people, our neighbors. Colonialism is enacted on indigenous bodies, as scholar Mary Ellen Kelm reminds us. I could speak about resilience, but I have a question about resilience, and it's, it, is, it is this. I see a lot of resilience, but why is resilience necessary? Why is so much resilience demanded? Next slide, please. What will children miss if residential schooling and Indigenous perspectives are not in the curriculum? Besides the history I've outlined already, they wouldn't know about Indigenous resistance. There's the Métis resistance, of course, but in spite of numerous obstacles, Indigenous people resisted residential schooling, even developing systems to do so. So I did a study in Nova Scotia uh, that involved uh, several communities, one of which was Two Mile. And in that community, someone was always on the lookout for the Indian agent or the RCMP, and whose goal was to kidnap children for residential schools. And when any of these people were sighted, parents hid their children in the woods. They gave them blankets and lunches that were always at the ready. And the children stayed there for a couple of nights. This strategy was successful and saved many children from the trauma of residential schooling. Next slide, please. Without Indigenous history in schools, children wouldn't know that Alberta is the only province in Canada where Métis have a constitutionally protected land base, the eight settlements, Peavine, Elizabeth Lake, and so on. They won't know that the treaties are actually the basis of Canadian law and that we are all treaty people, and this means something. Without Indigenous uh, perspectives in school, children won't learn that there are different ways of knowing. Now, this is a gross generalization, but while Western science focuses a great deal on naming and categorizing, indigenous science focuses more on relationships between beings. So in Mi'kmaq culture, an object is alive if it's touched or if it's being moved by something else. So a rock can be a living object. And these are just little hints of complex knowledge systems. Next slide, please. <clears throat> the last thing I want to address is the sadness issue. The minister wants to protect children from sadness. Children need to learn to identify and process emotions, and sadness is part of life. So is empathy, which I imagine we want to cultivate in our children. Teaching children about the Shoah, for instance, can be done in age-appropriate ways. Children in grade four in Alberta aren't shown pictures of skeletal corpses at Auschwitz, but at least some of them read Hannah's suitcase in grade four. This is the sad story of Hannah Brady, a Czech Jewish girl who died in the camps at only 13. Next slide. Parents and educators have always known how important it is to instill compassion in children. Younger children are primed for this when they are read a Christmas carol which has the imposition of human suffering and the abuse of power as its primary themes. 
Another Dickens classic, Oliver Twist, prepares children to learn about injustice directed at children. Oliver is born in a workhouse, and he's later sold to an apprenticeship. Next slide, please. The Dear Canada novels aimed at girls teach Canadian history and de delve into topics like slavery, a desperate road to freedom, the Underground Railroad Diary of Julia May Jackson, and residential schooling. These are my words, the residential school diary of Violet Pesheens by Ruby Slipperjack, an Anishinaabe survivor herself. Many, many Alberta school libraries have these popular books. So we do teach children about sad things. We teach our children about unnecessary suffering, structural injustice, human cruelty. Accordingly, we have to ask why the UCP government doesn't want our children exposed to sad things imposed on and experienced by Indigenous people. I'm reminded of Judith Butler's contention that some lives matters more, some lives matter more than others. Apparently, the suffering of some does not count as far as the UCP is concerned. Next slide, please. Some go even further than the UCP. Recently, middle school children in British Columbia were given an assignment to identify five positive things about residential schools. This is the First Nation parent, Krista McInnes, who brought this issue to national attention. I'm sure that good things did happen in residential schools occasionally because good things happen everywhere, even in Auschwitz. But curriculum like this is a denial of long-term structural injustice that continues to have lasting negative impacts on real living people. I'll end with advice from Rebecca Sakbisson, who teaches educational policy studies at the University of Alberta. Rebecca says, the earlier that we can introduce children to the truth about Canada's history, the sooner we can account for what has happened and ensure it doesn't ever happen again. Thank you, Will Allen. Thank you very much. Um, I don't see any questions currently in the queue, I think. Um, so um, could you explain a little bit about the process currently in the curriculum? Um, I know that Alberta is reviewing the curriculum, but are they currently um, including this in the curriculum? I couldn't find the um, grade four curriculum online. <laughs> that might be me, but mm -hmm. I couldn't find it. I do know when my daughter was in grade four, they, uh, uh, she was in a Catholic school at that time and they did, uh, Hannah's suitcase was on the curriculum. Uh, the story of the Czech girl who died in Auschwitz. Uh, mm -hmm. All the classes did that, not just her class. And uh, they did assignments on it. Uh, and Hannah's suitcase is in a museum in Japan. They wrote to the museum in Japan as an exercise. So uh, I know that there's certainly uh, education about suffering is uh, is in there. In grade four, they learned uh, very little about residential schools in passing. Um, so there, it didn't seem to be much of a theme, and I can't recall what the materials were. So I'm not sure what happens now. I know that the, Alberta, the government of Alberta had an extensive exercise that went on for some time and involved uh, curric uh, curriculum experts, content experts, and thousands and thousands of Albertans um, contributed to it. And so the 2014 promise um, 
was uh, is, is another factor that went into the development of that curriculum. And that very much includes Indigenous perspectives and history. But this curriculum is something that the UCP government is not interested in. Okay, we have um, some questions coming in now. Um, okay. Laura, our first question is from Laurie Schultz. Well, let's first of all say Jim Miller, uh, applause, Beth Mendel, what a powerful talk. Thank you. So our first actual question comes from Laurie Schultz. In the context of Ireland and Germany, can you comment on if there was pushback against including their history? I don't know about Germany. I spent a little bit of time in Germany, not a lot. Uh, I went to uh, grad school with German friends, so my knowledge of Germany is kind of casual. But I know my German friends told me they definitely learned about the Holocaust in Germany. And I remember walking down the street in Frankfurt and seeing um, stones in the street that um, discussed how Jewish people were taken from this site and so on. So very public um, in a pushback in Ireland. Uh, so mainly I listened to radio telephist Aaron uh, the radio programs from the state broadcaster. Uh, I So I've heard a lot of talk shows about this and interviews with survivors there. And you, you get a lot of sympathetic calls. Uh, and this is just anecdotal now, hey? So, um, but uh, there would be, so I don't see pushback from the population. I'd see pushback from the Irish state in terms of how much compensation should be given to these women, uh, the Magdalene Laundry women, for instance, how many hoops they should have to go through. The industrial school survivors who are male don't seem to have as strong of uh, an advocacy scheme or, or lobby or campaign. And many of them ended up in Britain. There are support agencies for them in Britain. Um, uh, RTE and the BBC have documented how a lot of these men ended up single, uh, precariously housed or homeless uh, and on the streets of England, actually. So there are agencies set up in Birmingham and, and other cities specifically to help Irish survivors of um, industrial schools. I don't know if the links are made to colonialism or not, but... Um, yeah, those are just some, some initial thoughts I have in response to your question, Laurie. Our next question comes from Mark Goodall. Are you aware of any studies comparing the adulthood of those children who went to residential school versus those that escaped by being hidden in the woods? I'm not, uh, but this is not really my area. It's uh, I did one study on it. Um, uh, and it wasn't comparative. It was uh, for a land claim and litigation for Acadia First Nation in Nova Scotia. And many of their, uh, they were elders then, when I interviewed them, many of them were able to escape because of that system they set up. But in terms of comparative studies, I, I don't know. I'm not aware. Uh, you could try Google Scholar and see if there's um, something there. But I mean, we we certainly do know there's a link. There is residential school syndrome, and there's a link between the schools and trauma that lasts through life. Our next question comes from uh, Jim Miller: Is our current curriculum telling other sad stories about mm. history in Alberta, of which there are many? 
Why do you think government is focusing on indigenous history in residential schools? Um, I again, like I don't know uh, everything that's in the curriculum. I would hope the story of Japanese internment is in there as well. Uh, that's certainly a story that we need to know about, and it's very close to home here. You can go to a sugar beet factory that's e even within the city limits. Um, the focus on indigenous people, I think, like I said earlier, like the, I think the the values, the, the indigenous way of no, of doing things is is completely different. Um, now people tend to be bicultural these days, but uh, you know, land and property is held commonly that is a direct conflict to the private property system that's privileged in Canadian law, Canadian criminal law, and certainly in the ideology of the UCP. Um, so I think if you follow the money, it ends up being about land and profit. I mean, it's inconvenient uh, for the UCP and their oil and gas allies if uh, indigenous people are, are in opposition to pipelines, for instance. Uh, because Indigenous people are not merely part of the multicultural mosaic of Canada, but have constitutional rights and have the right, the legal right, to be consulted on uh, proposed developments and so on. So it serves the UCP and their right-wing allies, I think, if um, Indigenous voices are, are, are quelled and not heard and invisible. And I think it's in the interests of the UCP not to educate its base to keep the status quo as it is. Thank you. Um, our next question comes from Timothy from the Lethbridge Herald. Um, how do you characterize the UCP's relationship with First Nations? They offer a billion dollars for economic development, but at the same time don't want children to learn about residential schools. Yeah, so I guess that's ironic, and I guess I would just have some questions. What do you mean by economic development? Is this economic development that's going to be guided by Indigenous values? Is this economic development that will serve Indigenous communities, that will contribute to Indigenous self-governance and self-determination? Or is it an attempt to um, privatize Indigenous lands, like they're trying to privatize our beautiful parks that we love so much? Um, is it, does it serve Indigenous people? Was it developed, uh, the fund and the use of the fund, the policies, regulations, were they developed um, with uh, a representative, uh, very, a wide representation of Indigenous people? Or is this yet another imposed kind of policy framework uh, dressed up as an opportunity? You can probably tell that I'm cynical, but I think the best predictor of um, future behavior is past behavior. And what we're seeing is uh, cuts to, uh, what we've seen is cuts to children with disabilities, uh, severe cuts to our post-secondary institutions, at over 300 layoffs at the University of Lethbridge forced upon us. Um, so damage to our economy, the removal of emergency services, um, Lot, huge loss of jobs and privatization in Alberta hospitals. So it's hard to think. It's hard to be, I'm not initially convinced, shall we say, that anything like such a fund would be in the interests of Indigenous people, given the uh, record of the, the Kenny government and their cuts. Our next question comes from Tad Mitsui. 
Um, he agrees with Pat, with Beth Mandel's comment about the very powerful talk. Thank you. Churches operated those schools, and some apologized. What does an apology mean? Mm. Um, it means different things to different people. I know that the Harper apology meant uh, a lot to a lot of people, and it was greeted with joy um, in Indigenous nations. I think that an apology, uh, if it's genuine, it recognizes that that I have hurt you, that I have made you suffer. I acknowledge that. So, and I think that recognition and acknowledgement is really important. So I said that my own home province I was excluded from the apology. And I know for Inuit in Labrador in particular, that hurt a lot. And they wanted an apology, a federal apology. So happily, a couple of years ago, Prime Minister Trudeau did go to Labrador and make a special apology to the Labrador Inuit. And there were, I wasn't there, but I watched it. And there were elders in the audience and older people who had uh, not, so, uh, not so old, who had gone through the schools, who tears were streaming down their faces. So the, the recognition and the acknowledgement uh, of an injustice, it, it goes a long way toward repair and towards better relationships, I think. Our next question comes from Laurie Schultz. Recently, the Minister of Education called for a one-week turnaround for nominations of teachers to review the curriculum. Can you comment on this process and or the status of the review? One week for could you, I don't yeah. understand the process, sorry. Yeah, um, I'll reread the question. Re okay. Recently, the Minister of Education called for a one-week turnaround for nominations of teachers to review the curriculum. Can you comment on the process and or the status and or the status of this review? Um, I don't know about the review, Laurie, but one week sounds a bit rushed to me. And I would wonder what the rush is. I know in indigenous culture, uh, there's uh, very much uh, a tendency not to hurry, to take our time, to do things with a, a lot of thought. So uh, I, I myself, um, I get concerned about things that are rushed. Okay. Our next question comes from Terry Shillington. How would you challenge the notion that in grade five and up, kids are old enough to grasp these, in, in quotation, sadness themes, but K4 are too young. Mm. Well, I, I guess we're back to age appropriate teaching, right? So with Hannah's suitcase is a very sad story, but it's an entryway, it's a book written for children by Karen Levine, and it's based on a true story. So they see the photographs of Hannah in the book, and, um, but it's a, it's, I won't say a gentle introduction, but it's a, I don't know, maybe a gentle introduction into the Holocaust, uh, which the further you get into it, you understand how absolutely horrific it was, right? But uh, so Hannah's suitcase, they learn about one girl and they learn also that her suitcase is in a museum and she's honored and remembered her brother survived and he's still, he, he was alive a few years ago anyway. And um, so he's taking care of her legacy. So there's a bit of a comfort in that story. Um, 
So also the deer, the, the deer Canada stories as well. If you read those, you see the the, the characters um, resilience. There's it's not 100 percent. The, the stories aren't 100% negative. There's It's up and down for kids to keep, I suppose, to keep their attention. I, I don't know, really. But if you think about fairy tales, Hansel and Gretel, and and uh, I mean, we're preparing children for, uh, you know, the fact that the world is complex and there's a lot of sadness and there's a lot of cruelty and so on. You're, but you're not throwing everything at once. So something like Oliver, the movie, is kind of a, a primer, I would say, for uh, for children to learn later on, maybe, or to I don't know at what age, but that you know Oliver wasn't just one character. This whole he was part of this whole system of the incarceration of poor, the poor and and, and undesirables and so on. So I suppose it needs to happen in levels, and I think that's how most of us would parent our children, tell them bit by bit what's appropriate. Our next question comes from uh, Jim Miller. The parallel between residential schools in Canada and Ireland history is fascinating. Mm. Is that parallel because British em because of British Empire influencing both Ireland and Canada? Yes, as far as I can tell, the workhouses and the institutionalization of people uh, in massive structures was a British invention. Uh, I might be wrong, but I'm not aware of other cultures um, that I know other other European cultures have orphanages and that this practice has been spread through the uh, south as well. But the the in, as far as I can tell, and I'm not a historian in this area either, but uh, the idea of warehousing people um, in, in uh, institutions like that, uh, sometimes for life, it seems to have been a British institution. And it was used uh, with their own people in Britain, with uh, with uh, the Romanichal, the uh, the indigenous uh, traveler people of Britain. It was used with poor people, surplus people, uh, people who were different, who were poor, uh, who were had mental illnesses, and so on. And um, then it was used in Ireland as a result of a royal commission. Uh, the workhouse system was brought uh, to uh, Ireland in, I think, the, in uh, the early 1800s. 1838 might have been the first one. Around the same time that the first residential school opened in Canada uh, for Mohawk people in uh, southern Ontario. And, of course, Australia too, right? Yeah, so you can see this kind of tool or device of institutionalizing people as a, a kind of a prong or, or tool in the colonial toolbox, if you like. Um, our next question comes from Ian Hurdle. My early years were near a reserve and I probably bicycled within three kilometers of a residential school that I did not know existed until age 20. I was up to date on Freedomite residential schools. Any comment? Um, you were up to date on what residential schools? Freedomite. Freedomite? What? I don't know what they are. How does? How's that spelled? F e f r e e d o m i t e. Freedomite. Yeah, I, I don't know what they are. 
but I have, um, I mentioned in the talk that a young woman, I, I guess she'd look me up, I don't know, um, in Calgary approached me on social media and she was just so upset she had been hiking and come across an abandoned residential school and she wanted to know what it was. Uh, there was a little plaque there and, and said, uh, you know, it had been a residential school. And then she said she looked this up on Wikipedia. She's in her about 25 years old. And she was really shocked. And then she contacted me for some reason to get more information about it. She was very, very angry. We had a lengthy exchange that she'd grown up in Calgary and not known about this. So it is curious that... I'd like to know how that happens, that you live next to a reserve, and I'm not blaming you. How does it happen that you the school is there and you don't, it's not talked about? It's, I'm really curious about that myself, and I'm not blaming you. This is very, a very, very common phenomena across the country. And I don't know. The, the Magdalene laundries were right in the middle of uh, the cities in, in Ireland. Um it's it's uh, amazing that that we somehow we all have this ability to to not see things that we should see i suppose um ian hurdle just uh updated to say it's the dukabor protests in oh, the 60s okay. okay so the the dukabor children were taken from their parents weren't they mm-hmm. yeah and the dukabor people um so i mean i suppose I'm, I don't know much about them, but I, they're Rush, formerly Russian, right? And they're, they, they had a way of life that was very, very different from kind of the white Canadian settler society that was being imposed. I don't know if did the Dukabors hold property in common. Uh, I know there were ways that they were different. So, I mean, we're really afraid of difference. And look what happened to the Japanese people. And uh, British Columbia shipped here to Alberta during the war, uh, and it seems like you know the the, the neoliberal state has ways of, um, and the colonial state has ways of trying to make these differences invisible and trying to make us all live the same way. And it sounds like I must look look up the Freedomite schools. It sounds like the Dukabors were victims of that as well. I know their children were taken from were taken from them, which was extremely traumatic. When you traumatize the population, how does the population recover from that? Okay, our next question comes from uh, Beth Mundell. What do you think? What do you think it is in the British system that promoted the neoliberal model of injustice? Was it related to their sea dominance? Huh. Well, then the colonialism would not have happened without the British Navy and without British maritime skills. So that's for sure. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, the market has oft, has all, often, sorry, I mean, the, the notion of private property, we read John Locke hundreds of years ago, and it's there. It, it's been privileged for centuries in British law and in British society and in British ideology. Uh, and it seems to be, I lived in Britain for three years, very much taken for granted private property uh, and um, the notion that a, a, a British, uh, an Englishman's home is his castle. I mean, it sounds like a cliche, but it's true. I mean, far, if you cross the farmer's field in England, they would more than likely get extremely upset about it. Um, and there are uh, 
special paths set aside uh, that people have to uh, agree, like the local authority and the, the farmer agree that ramblers, walkers can walk on their property. So the, the notion of private property is very, very entrenched there. Uh, as is capitalism in the market, and capitalism has an ever-expanding, it has a need to continuously expand. So that's something that the empire serves. But there's there's certainly an imperialist thrust that comes from Britain um, and and has, you know, uh, mo much of the world was pink on those old maps, right, part of the British, uh, British empire. Um, so I lost my train of thought there, but I was just um, thinking about, I think you were saying something about, um, oh, the Navy and so on, right? Yeah, and the yeah. neoliberal neo model of injustice. And right. Was so, connected. Yeah, so, and when the industri so particularly when the industrialization comes, the, uh, and it's, it's first in Britain, uh, the factories need cotton and they need wool and they need raw materials and these come from the the outer reaches of the empire to um, uh, make money in Britain but of course the wealth accrues upward and the working classes uh, rural people are displaced you had the um, the enclosure of the commons hundreds of years ago in Britain the loss of rural common areas and the industrialization uh, in the uh, 19 in the 1800s also displaces rural people. So these are excess people. These are surplus people. They're not necessary for the generation of profit. And one of Britain's answers to them is to institutionalize them. Okay. Our next question comes from Knut Peterson. Religious ideology and probably mm. racism is arguably at the root of the current Alberta government overhaul of school curriculum. What can we do to at least modify this problem? This is really tough because I've been in Alberta for years. I don't understand why anyone votes UCP. I just don't understand it. Um, this is a government that is not taking care of us as uh, you know our people are dying from from COVID. Uh, this is a government led by a man who had a snitch line when he was minister of federal minister of immigration, uh, calling in rat on refugees. I mean, this this these are not Albertans. I had you know seem to me to be nice people in general, but yet the you know these are nice people. Tyler Shandrell. Uh, is is not a nice guy picking fights with doctors and and causing this level of stress that we're going to lose our doctors. So I mean they're not behaving well and and you could see it coming. And so I don't I don't understand how why why people would vote for them. Um, um, I, I I know that propaganda plays a large part in it. If you look at what they said about the carbon tax. I mean, it was, there were basically lies about the carbon tax. Al Alberta gained from the carbon tax and individual households gained from the rebates, um, but that's gone. And now that money goes to Ottawa actually. Uh, so that's money that's not coming into Alberta yet. You know, that was one of the propaganda tools that was used to, you know, vote in Kenny. So I suppose propaganda is a big part of it. What can we do? Well, this is important, these kinds of forums. Um, a lot of us at the university are writing to our MLAs. We're writing to uh, the ministers. Uh, I've written to uh, my MP, Rachel Harder, uh, a few times. I, 
I'm not sure how fruitful that is. Um, some of us have signs on our lawns about defending Alberta parks. Uh, we need to organize. I think we need more more demonstrations, although that's impossible now. Um, I don't know. The usual things, the written word is is the first thing that, that dictators go after. And I'm not saying that Kenny is a dictator, but it just shows you how important the written word is. So, I mean, my, it's always my weapon to write, and I, I just think we should keep doing it. Our next question comes from Laurie Schultz. Aside from an inclusive curriculum, are you able to share any insights by your students? Well, I mean, our, yeah, I think this generation of students is fantastic. I think, you know, today the, the values that I see in the young people coming up, I mean, they know they're not going to be as wealthy as their parents or perhaps even their grandparents. But a lot of them, you know, they're they're not materialistic. They're not interested in accumulation and, and prestige. I, I mean, I'm generalizing now, but I see really good values among this generation of young people. And... Um, Sorry, could you repeat the question again? I lost track of it there. Yeah. Um, aside from inclusive curriculum, are you able yeah. to share any insights by your yeah. students? Yeah. So, I mean, I teach uh, geography and I teach indigenous studies. So in this one sense, I mean, I'm seeing students who are self-selected, right? They're going to be studying these things. But I have had lots of students, uh, say, in the indigenous studies 1000 class who are there because their program puts them there. They have to be there and they don't really want to be there. But there's an openness to those young people that is actually quite encouraging. Not all the time, but um, they seem to be more convinced by evidence than, the, say, the UCP does. Um, so they're they're interested in in evidence, and I, I don't know. I just feel more hopeful about them. Same with the United States. I mean, the young people are were behind Black Lives Matters. So I'm pretty optimistic if we can get over a few hurdles <laughs> i'm pretty optimistic about the next generation for sure our next question comes from timothy at the leftbridge herald are you concerned settler cultures and white supremacist cultures will at some point simply reject the id atonement for anything we seem to be seeing that more the not us that was in the past they say Yes, that's right. Uh, the pol and the, that polarization. So we know that in the Western United States and in Alberta and BC, there are pockets of very committed white supremacists. White supremacists. And this is something that a government that had true leadership uh, would be very concerned about. But instead, you see the premier kind of hinting the other day that a certain. Uh, community of new Canadians was responsible for COVID outbreaks in one of our large cities. So there's that kind of gaslighting that uh, some might consider racism. So we're la we don't have the leadership to combat white supremacy. And we don't, if we're not going to teach our children about our history, um, and if they're not going to know uh, anything about indigenous people, I mean, that really opens the gateway for ignorance and it opens and where they're losing an opportunity to learn about, uh, to learn compassion, which is a, a characteristic they'll need for their lives. Another concern I have is that 
if we're going to we if if this goes through this business of not teaching about residential schools and um and and some of the other ideas that they have there's a lot of emphasis on memorization for instance this is really going to disadvantage alberta students as canadian citizens and as uh, employees and employers in the future. I mean, presumably some of them will want to live and work in other provinces. Uh, they're gonna be disadvantaged. They're gonna show up on another campus to do their, to do a degree or another college in Saskatchewan or wherever. And, and they just won't have the knowledge space that other Canadians will have. I mean, we already suffer from an image uh, problem in Alberta. Um, lots of jokes that about you know the redneck aspect of Alberta culture, and uh, we will actually be taking steps backwards and disadvantaging our own students to work in a Canada and live in a Canada that is increasingly multicultural and that is increasingly moving towards indigenization, um, not just in universities and colleges, but in many businesses, in fact. Um, our next question comes from Bev Mundell. Was the system of poorhouses in Britain a precursor or part of this neoliberal system of removing people from the system? A precursor or part of it? Hmm. I suppose I would just say that the ideology would have been building up for a long time. Um, kind of the privileging of capitalism in the market and the uh, special place of private property in British law. I would, I'm not, um, I would say that all of those things at some point become knit, knit together and you have this solution to excess people and undesirable people uh, and uh, resulting in, in poor laws and um, institutionalization. I mean, the fact that the poor law, the old poor law, it was called, of 1572, the fact that it identifies wanderers and vag vagabonds as a problem, the, that, it, that implies that they want permanent year-round settlement, predictable, continuous land use and private property. So they're identifying movement of people, and, which is a certain kind of freedom. They're identifying that as a problem, and they're putting uh, laws in place to, um, to to kind of contain it very early on. Okay. Um, we've got a couple more questions. We're coming up to 1 o'clock. Um, uh, is that okay? Yep, yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. I don't know if I can answer them all, yeah. <laughs> but I'll try. <laughs> okay. Um, Knut Peterson, many other atrocities was perpetuated towards indigenous people in Canada. To what degree are those facts being taught in schools as part of the curriculum? Well, I'm not sure. Uh, one of the things that bothers me about the way um, anything indigenous is taught is I've seen it kind of taught in a way that emphasizes the performative aspects of indigenous culture. So you might have a powwow at a, in a school for a day or an afternoon or something. And that's fine, but I wonder how much context is around that. So uh, I, I get concerned that indigenous people uh, should not be seen as part of the 
uh, merely part of the multicultural mosaic of Canada because First Nations, Métis and Inuit are separate, are different in that First Nations, Métis and Inuit have constitutional, constitutionally protected rights unlike any other group. And as communities, Indigenous people have political goals, political aspirations, and there are other, uh, there's other legislation, environmental legislation and so on, coming out of court decisions about consultation on land use and so on. So it, the, the emphasis on the performative aspect, I suppose it's an introduction and a way into learning about Indigenous people, but I think it's very important that it not end at that. Uh, that that powwows are contextualized uh, as as um, you know uh, gatherings and so on with uh, as, as assertions of identity and let's talk about that identity let's explore it so we go into the history and so on. Our next question is from Laurie Schultz. There appears to be a resistance in acknowledging post-traumatic stress disorders, mm. be it from Indigenous people history or veterans of Canadian Armed Forces. Can you comment on this resistance? I can, and I actually am a veteran of the Canadian Armed Forces. Uh, there is resistance to this. Uh, it's expensive. If we're going to admit that uh, PTSD has been caused by um, either the military or by um, policies of the government of Canada, it's expensive, it costs money. What, what do we privilege? We privilege money. So the F Canadian federal government has had to pay out a lot of money in the uh, residential school settlements. There's a military class action sexual misconduct lawsuit uh, now that has been approved. And I think they'll be paid, I, I won't give the numbers, I'm terrible with numbers, but uh, that is it, well, well, well into the, um, Many, lots and lots of money that also will be paid out very expensive uh, and of course in addition to that you have bureaucrats who are uh, be spending all their time responding to these lawsuits and uh, the redress schemes and, and so on so I mean, PTSD is expensive business so uh, we also are paying for PTSD through our prison system our criminal justice system our healthcare system it's expensive business. It's best not to prevent it. How do we prevent it? We prevent it by education and teaching empathy to children, which is something that this government doesn't really seem to get. Um, our, we've got a few comments, um, which I'll actually leave to the end. We have one, one question. Isn't removing history from the curriculum as bad as book burning by Bev Mandel? Yes. Yes, it is. I would no. say so. Yeah. And then um, Ian Hurdle, after self-education on my own, it was even more startling to live in Newfoundland and learn mm. Beothic's history. Interesting mm. that some residents now admitting family history. Yeah, so there uh, we were taught in schools uh, that the Beothic were, uh, this is really interesting, <laughs> that the Beothic were uh, exterminated, and they were. Um, but we were taught that it was the Mi'kmaq who did it. The Mi'kmaq came over from Nova Scotia and killed the Beothic. Now, that's an interesting story. Who... Who, whose interest does that story serve? 
So that renders the Mi'kmaq visitors to Newfoundland. You can't really file a land claim if you're a visitor. Uh, and the, the, that it places, Premier Brian Peckford placed the Mi'kmaq presence in Newfoundland after settlers. So the settlers came first and they brought the Mi'kmaq over. Kind, kind of a, it doesn't really make a lot of sense and didn't happen anywhere else. Uh, but the Beothic did die. They were, um, Newfoundland is a, a mostly subarctic tundra and boreal forest, the ninth largest island in the world. Very uh, sparse resources in terms of living, like large uh, mammals. You'd have caribou, you'd have uh, black bear, They but they're small. So the Beothic num would have numbered about 300 people, and they spent year, they were on the island year round. Um, so they, that's kind of, pretty, kind of a precarious situation. So they died from European diseases. They died from uh, losing access to the coastal resources. You really, really need to get access to fish if you're um, living in Newfoundland for protein and food. Um, and they also died uh, from violence, skirmishes with settlers. There was no official campaign to exterminate them. But that was the effect of the presence of the settlers. And for many years, uh, the Newfoundland government uh, propagated the idea that there were no indigenous people left in Newfoundland and that the Biot. And then when, in fact, it was hard for them to prove that was the case, they would say that the settlers came before the um, the uh, the indigenous people did. So uh, this is... Uh, yeah, firsting and lasting. Uh, there's a Jean O'Brien, who's an indigenous scholar in the States, she calls it. Similar to New England, some of the New England governors argued that um, the indigenous people there arrived after the settlers did. They came from other parts of the continent and so on. It's it's very political, as, as you can see. Okay. Um we have our final question. Since we are all humans, aren't powwows white history also? And are the atrocities of European countries also the sins of all humans? Okay, so can you say that again, yeah. Elise, please? Yeah. Uh, this mm -hmm. question comes from Denver, Florence. Mm -hmm. Since we are all humans, aren't powwows white? And white is in um, quotation marks. White history also? And are the atrocities of European countries also the sins of all humans? Mm. Yeah, so powwows can be uh, part of uh, Canadian history. Um, and Canadian are, you know, they can be part of the indigenization of this country and the recognize the recognition that, you know, we're founded on indigenous law and the treaties. Um, so, and I know there are powwows in Lethbridge at the uh, NMAC center that everybody is welcome to. So, yes, um, I would, with regard to the atrocities that happened in Europe, I, I recall Hannah Arendt, the G German Jewish philosopher, who said that the Holocaust, uh, there were dangers in looking at the Holocaust as uh, a sin against the Jewish people or a crime against the Jewish people only because it was very much a crime against humanity. And she, her concern there was that we have in us the ability to commit crimes against whatever group happens to be inconvenient at that time while acknowledging the extreme suffering of the Jewish people. Um, so you reminded me of Hannah Arendt with that, with that comment there. 
and uh, the urge to you know to look inward and be be careful what we do and how we treat others okay so we've come to the end i'd like to read some of the thank you comments um okay jim miller thank you very much for fascinating and educational talk it is very much appreciated laurie schultz thank you very much thank you for a very enlightened presentation the parallels between Ireland and residential schools gives much food for thought. Um, Belinda Croson, thank you very much for the presentation and for providing us with so much to think about and act on. Um, Bev Mundell, thank you very much. There's lots there. Um, I want to thank you on behalf of SACPA. And before we um, end this live stream, is there any take home message that you have for our audience today? Uh, well, I would, some of you suggested activism and what we can do. And, and I mean, the problem, there's so much coming at us from this UCP government right now, the parks, the schools, the universities, the hospitals. I've chosen two causes that I can manage, that I can handle, that I can follow. And those are the causes that I uh, engage in uh, politically. So maybe if each of us could pick one or two causes so we don't get overwhelmed by them all and uh, raise our voices and uh, keep writing and, and talking and uh, opposing um, some of the things that are being done uh, here in Alberta. Okay, thank you. And um, we um, just to let you know, everybody, we have a special SACPA session coming up on uh, Tuesday, December the 8th, um, with Dr. Simon Sweeney from the United Kingdom, uh, talking about Brexit. No hiding place for the UK government, which seems very timely, given that um, that's going to be happening at the end of December. So uh, that's at 10 o'clock Mountain Standard Time, and I hope you'll join us then. And um, thank you for tuning in today. Thank you.